Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 3rd, 2019, honoring the work of former fellows from the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University. Past fellow Murad Idris is currently a professor of politics at the University of Virginia. Professor Idris studies the history of political thought from a comparative perspective, examining how issues such as war, empire, post-colonialism, and secularism have been handled by thinkers in the Western and Islamic traditions. In his 2019 book, War for Peace, Genealogies of a Violent Ideal in Western and Islamic Thought, Professor Idris looks at how political thinkers have written about the idea of peace, and he makes the surprising argument that peace is never an uncontroversial or purely beneficial ideal. As its title suggests, War for Peace explores how the goal of peace has been used by political thinkers to justify war and other forms of injustice. Although thinkers such as Plato, Al-Farabi, and Kant all use the concept of peace, its meaning has changed over time, and peace has been used by political communities to define their friends and enemies, to justify colonialism, and to delegitimize political dissent. Professor Idris argues that peace is a dangerous idea because it is simplistic and that by critiquing it, we can develop more complex ways of describing solutions to political conflict. First, we'll hear Professor Idris discuss his book's argument and read a bit from its introduction. We will also hear a panel response from Professor Ilana Feldman, another former fellow in the Society of Fellows and a professor of anthropology, history, and international affairs at George Washington University. I was here in uh, 2014, 2015, uh, and it was uh, during that uh, period that uh, I uh, basically rewrote the uh, entire book, so it's uh, nice to kind of bring it home in a way. <laughs> the uh, cover uh, of the book is uh, by an artist named uh, Dia Al-Azawi, uh, and uh, uh, even though the book is uh, not about uh, camps, and even though it's not about uh, Palestine, uh, the uh, title of the piece is... Uh, 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 the Massacre of Sabra and Shatila, uh, one of eight, we are seen but not heard only as corpses. War for Peace is about peace as a political concept and as a moralized ideal. It focuses on peace in the writings of ten canonical thinkers in political theory, Plato, Al-Farabi, Aquinas, Erasmus, Gentili, Grotius, Ibn Khaldun, Hobbes, Kant, and Sayyid Qutb. The book questions peace, or how the compulsive desire for peace defines what it means to be human or civilized or good, and the moralities that this then puts into play and the politics that it enables. It's framed around the repeated idea that war is for the sake of peace, or the paradoxical position of peace, both opposing war and authorizing war. So I'm going to read bits and pieces from the introduction to give you a few provocations also from the chapters as a whole. Peace is a troubling ideal, that's how I opened the book. 
We often hear its name spoken as a permanently desirable and universal moral ideal. It is today a pervasive belief that to be human, civilized, and good is to value peace, to desire peace. Only the most inhuman monsters do not love it. The belief in peace as a basic human desire and universal aspiration occludes just how readily its invocations dehumanize enemies, sanitize violence, and silence dissent. This is not to disregard that sometimes appeals to peace can offer an effective platform for change, resistance, or critique, but it is to question the work that a general belief in peace or a desire for peace performs. The conceptual grammar of peace orders the world by calling for peace and security, peace and unity, order, law, friendship, or development. It describes peace and violence in terms of symmetry and equivalence between given entities, and it treats peace as the one thing that all people must wish for and desire. And within this grammar, the paradoxical idea that war is for the sake of peace continues to circulate in contemporary public discourses around the globe, as well as in major works of historical and contemporary political theory. This is an arsenal that has proven useful to the perpetuation of inequality and violence. The grammar of peace has tended to deflect attention from structures of power. I see the book as an attempt at unmaking peace, or bringing into view, instead of covering up, exactly what it is that makes peace troubling. At its barest, it's an invitation to look more critically, more skeptically, at those who claim to speak in the name of peace, at the ostensibly universal desire for peace, and at the dominant grammar of peace, so to see peace fundamentally as a problem. At its most ambitious, it is a genealogy of the moralities of peace. I offer three overarching arguments, basically that peace is parasitical because we always talk about peace and something else, peace and security, peace and law, not peace on its own. Second, it's provincial, its universalization reflects uh, different anthropological hierarchies, desires, fears, anxieties, and partial constructions of the globe. And finally, I say it is polemical. That's the last of my P's. Uh, in saying that its idealization is the product of specific antagonisms whose moralities are often forgotten, even as peace then continues to enable hostility. The book traces a logic of peace that necessitates war and then sanctions hierarchies within humanity. I'm going to give you some flavor of the kinds of moves that I make in the book just in three provocations. With Al-Farabi and Aquinas, the idea of the peace lover who wages just war against a warlike enemy actually results in a deep irony. The peace lover and his enemy resemble each other. The difference is one of them talks about peace. The moral economy of peace is embedded in a political economy of war. In chapter 5, instead of reading Hobbes as the theorist of state sovereignty or the English Civil War, I suggest that Hobbes theorizes settler colonialism. The desires and the life that he associates with peace actually end up spreading war, death, and the uneven valuation of lives across the globe. Kant's hospitality grows out of his racialized construction of the Arab, and his globe is formed by Orientalism and its discourses about camels. Qutb, <laughs> the Islamist, is a theorist of the racialization of Muslims and the colonial production of global peace. These chapters were all critical of idealizing peace, so instead of asking how we might attain world peace for all, 
the question here is why we insist on the name peace, how that name itself orders our understandings of political solutions, who gets to ponder these solutions and invoke peace in the process. Peace is not the solution, it is a problem. This book is a genealogy of peace in order to move beyond peace. Next, we hear from Ilana Feldman, a professor of anthropology, history, and international affairs at George Washington University. You can hear Professor Feldman talk about her own research into the experiences of Palestinian refugees in last week's episode. In her comments, Professor Feldman shows how the example of Palestine illustrates Professor Idris's argument that peace is a simplistic ideal that conceals important conflicts. She also asks Professor Idris about better alternatives to peace as a concept. And at the end, we will hear them discuss one of these alternatives. You, Murad, you, you prefaced your, your comments by saying that yours was not a book about Palestine, but I thought it was a book about Palestine. <laughs> That's how I'm going to respond to it. <laughs> this is really a vitally necessary book. Um, and in order to, so why do I see it as a, as a book about Palestine? And Palestine is just one instance, a very important instance, but it's one instance where the, the problems that you identify and the dynamics that, that are described in the book play out. Because of course in Palestine, the language protocols and procedures of peace and peace building has been deployed as a weapon against Palestinians and their political aspirations for decades. Um, and you know, a lot of the way that that is talked about is either the question of the failures of the, of the peace process or a kind of cynicism that what's at stake is not peace and that it's, you know, that's just a smokescreen. But this book gives us really crucial analytic to understand the way it is and the fact that it's not that it's not peace and that's the problem. It's sometimes that is the problem, but that it, it is through peace. That some, that some of these things happen. Um, and it, that peace works to shift the political debate in ways that are detrimental, um, um, in this case, to Palestinians. And so it, we need to understand not just how peace has been used, but what it is, right? what it has been, what it can be. So in relation to, I want to stick, I will, I will eventually, I promise, sort of move away from, from Palestine, but, but the, the three Ps, that, that you provide to, to help us make sense generally of how, or you know, it's not, there's nothing general about this, but more broadly about how, how peace has, has been articulated. Um, I found very helpful to, to see how, it's, how it has been um, used in this context. Certainly um, the polemical aspect of peace, um, that it is, you know, uh, as you say, sort of elaborated with specific enemies in view, that the central character for peace is the enemy. Um, and, and if there's anything permanent, really, it's that what is permanent is the enemy. And that um, that certainly has has been the case here where sort of peace is is defined as a quality attached to one party, in this case Israel, and foreign to Palestinians who are who must um, occupy uh, the role of the enemy. Also the, the ways that peace is parasitical that in order to be deemed to be in the realm of talk of being peaceful, being a peacemaker, talking about peace, you need to see to and ex accept a whole set of other concepts which might be quite antithetical to pursuits of justice, pursuits of restitution. <clears throat> All of those things have no place if they can't if they've already been deemed 
against the attributes or the correlates that go along with peace. Um, and then the, the, certainly the, the notion that this is a, peace is a, is a term that des describes itself as universal but is always provincial, right? And provincial partly because it is the, it is the domain of only some. And so my own particular interest, I got so much out of reading through this really um, wide-ranging text that covers an enormous amount of intellectual ground, which you hinted at, but you can't pot It's another one. You have to read it to, <laughs> have to understand just how um, incisive all the arguments are. But I wanted to very briefly um, talk about a couple of the, the concepts. And, and again, sort of reflecting my own interest, I, this, these are from the chapter on um, Kant and Huttum. Um, and you know, through the reading of, of um, Kant and Huttum, and the, the pairings in all of these chapters are, are really illuminating. So peace that you show is not just a historical concept, though it is that, but very much a concept that entails a theory of history, that it is a theory of history. Um, and really, it's a theory at the end of history. And um, you know, particularly you know, the idea of perpetual peace um, is of, of history at its end, and that what you were, the, the teleology is a teleology of end times, really. Um, and so one of the, you know, in addition to laying out the three Ps that peace entails, uh, Murad identifies, in some sense, three alternative uh, possibilities. Truce, per particular peace, right, so peace between that declares itself its particularities, and the ethics of separation. Um, and I, I mean, they were all very interesting. Um, the, I, maybe I'll say a little bit about the idea of a truce, because of course, you know, he, in reading Kant, specifically describes truce as, an, from Kant's perspective, inadequate. It doesn't have the correlates, it doesn't have the, the, the permanence and the perpetual nature, and Murat suggests that maybe it is precisely in those limits that something like truce may be the place where we would want to um, hang our hat, direct our attention, right? If, if the question is um, a pursuit of justice, a resolution of conflict, that the idea of a thing for now, it faced with the problems that you have, with the particular people that you have, that isn't the end of history, right? We are in, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we never have the end of history, but the truth can be um, potentially a way forward. So that I mentioned that he's, you've got these three alternatives, truce, which I find especially compelling, um, and particular piece, and then and separation. And it's separation I want to ask you about. Because when you brought it up in the, in the introduction, my first thought was, oh, what separation? Is this like this tolerance discourse? And then, of course, you get to it, and you're like, this is not, this is not tolerance, you know, but what, uh, but what Wendy Brown talked about. This is something else. This is the capacity for some other kind of seeing in being a part, some other possibility. Again, in my parochial reading it through Palestine, the language of separation has been not so generative, right? Um, so, um, and not just walls, but the but the language of the language of Oslo. That the way that we're going to resolve this is to separate, right? Whereas there is potentially the, the way we're going to do something is truce. Like truce seems helpful. So I guess I, I want you to convince me more about separation. Or say more about it. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, so I think on the question of Palestine, yes, I would not go in the... So the way that I see the three sort of other possibilities uh, isn't as uh, 
uh, here's a uh, here's either the way forward for any particular given set of political problems, or uh, uh, here's uh, how now we should be reconceptualizing peace. But rather, here are three things which uh, uh, what's the uh, which we tend to denigrate or we don't elevate to the level of political theory and philosophy that actually deserve uh, a. Uh, that basically deserve a seat at the table at the very least. Uh, so when it comes to separation there, I'm really just thinking of how the part of what the language of peace has tended to smuggle in, sometimes through the language of forgetfulness, but I think that's a different uh, uh, strand that uh, we can talk about either now or uh, later. Uh, the, uh, it tends to smuggle in this idea of the... Uh, uh, you either have two peoples living side by side uh, in uh, uh, harmony or living together in one state in harmony when actually part of the politics of uh, part of the politics period is in fact the disharmony it's in fact the disunity it's in fact the uh, the fact that the kinds of conflicts and disagreements the uh, the language of peace attempts to usually smooth over can't be smoothed over so for separation there I'm thinking of more uh, more of how uh, something that we do on a daily basis, which is separate from people or groups that we find objectionable, is something that actually presents us with yet another way of modalizing peace that's not about togetherness, not about agreement, not about harmony, not about friendship, not about all these sorts of positive things. So uh, I completely agree with you that uh, uh, the other thing we can say is the language of separation is itself central to uh, a lot of the uh, history of race in the US, for instance, right? Uh, and that would be another troubling instantiation of it. But I think I would then want to say that each of these three is not pure, right? And that's part of what the book is really about. The, uh, the, uh, the search for purity, for purity uh, is part of what peace has uh, provided moral cover for. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Murad Idris's book, War for Peace, Genealogies of a Violent Ideal in Western and Islamic Thought. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Will Slaughter's book, Who Owns the News? A History of Copyright. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.